Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, this is David Garan. This is Jesse Gold. And this is Psyched. So today we have Melissa Arbuckle with us, the co-director of resident education in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Uh, she went to medical school at the University of Oklahoma and did a residency at Columbia. She served as a New York State Office of Mental Health Policy Scholar 2009-2012, exploring the implementation of standardized patient assessments and measurement-based care in the clinical practice of residents and training. She directs the Quality Improvement Curriculum for the Residency Training Program. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You have a correction? Yeah. What is it? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's okay. So I'm now the Director of Residency Training, ah. and I'm the Vice Chair for Education. So, so, yeah, that so has a, a promotion. A yes, promotion. a promotion. That's always Congratulations. good. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> <laughs> so well, thank you for joining us. And uh, we've got a lot of... Uh, uh, I'm excited to talk to you about uh, a number of things, but uh, particularly... Um, uh, the role of neuroscience in the psychiatry curriculum. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on the why that's a good idea or not? Well, I think our knowledge in terms of neuroscience and its relevance to the clinical practice of psychiatry is increasing daily. Uh, the research in neuroscience and psychiatry is really exploding. And if that research is going to reach patients, it's going to require a clinician workforce that understands that work and um, can speak that kind of language. And so say more about what are, what are some of the ways that neuroscience can be integrated into a curriculum? I mean, what would that look like? In terms of medical training? Yeah. So I think that, you know, as part of the National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiative, we've been de developing teaching resources, and that started in terms of thinking about how we teach neuroscience in the classroom. And in particularly, how we make sure that neuroscience for medical audience feels clinically relevant, that it's taught in a way that capitalizes on adult learning, um, and that it's kind of experienced near to trainees and their role with patients. So when, when we first started, we were really thinking about how to do that in the classroom, but most of your training is in clinical settings. So more recently, we've moved towards developing short uh, videos in terms of teaching core neuroscience topics that can be used in clinical settings with both the teacher and the trainee together. I think we've had this model for education where the teacher is supposed to be the expert teaching something to a student. And for neuroscience, the field is exploding and most clinicians are not neuroscience experts and feel uncomfortable teaching. So we've developed really short educational videos that teachers or, or faculty and trainees can watch together and learn together. And so it's, it's really a different way of teaching. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely um, the, the old model or at least the traditional model of expert uh, you know, trainee is uh, that, that kind of turns it on its head. Now, I mean, is, is this, are these videos that are available online, or, or what's, uh, yes. what is the project? Yes. So in 2014, I joined with uh, Mike Travis and David Ross to develop the National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiative. And in that project, we, do, we put all of these open resource um, videos, papers online. Anyone can log in, create a, create a login to access the materials. 
And the idea was to really disseminate neuroscience education in a way that was accessible and clinically relevant and all of those things. Do you feel like neuroscience has the potential for people that are in psychiatry to feel like it's boring? Oh, in terms of the way it's currently taught? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I think that's one of the major challenges in teaching neuroscience is that the way it has been historically taught is in our traditional models that the expert will come in and do a lecture because scientists are used to teaching to a scientific community, and that's usually that dissemination is usually a PowerPoint slide set. So they come in with their talk from their latest meeting, ready to engage medical students or residents, and um, I think they hit, they miss the mark a lot of times. They don't really realize the um, lack of foundational knowledge that medical trainees have. They so they make a lot of assumptions about what uh, clinical trainees know and don't know. And um, within a few minutes, trainees are often lost, and it doesn't feel clinically relevant. It's about their latest rat study, and um, they don't they don't make that effort to say this is how this matters to the patient that's going to be in front of you tomorrow. So I think that's been a huge challenge and um, partly why neuroscience and education has not been so great up until now. And so is this something that, um, you say these, uh, these modules are online, is this, uh, you know, some of our listeners are psychiatrists, but some of them are not. Some of them uh, might be patients or family members. Is this something that you're hoping uh, everybody can use? Absolutely. So when we first started, um, you know, we had this idea that we would create different modules for different learners. So we would have some basic stuff that was more for the lay public. We'd have some intermediate stuff that might be for medical students and residents, and then perhaps expert-level content. And what we found is really everyone's kind of at the lay public level, that we don't know anything about neuroscience. And so all of these resources are incredibly accessible to anybody, um, you know, one of our modules that I think is particularly great is called Talking Pathways to Patients. And in these um, sessions, a um, in one it's a trainee and another it's a faculty member, role play what they would say to a patient. One is about the neuroscience underlying addiction. And um, the idea is that they're demonstrating what you could say to a patient, but there's no reason why those videos couldn't be directly useful to, to the patient population that they're targeting. Have you gotten any feedback from uh, non-doctors or non-trainees about the, the modules? Do you know of anybody who's used these or who's, who's gone through these modules that's not uh, a you know, medical affiliate? So I don't know. You know we ha so our main um, outcome measure we've been looking so far is just uptake, and, and yet we don't really know who's using the modules so far. But certainly the people who have been using them have been incredibly enthusiastic and um, when we've, we also have several um, resources that we've shared over Facebook. And, and when we're getting the highest hits in terms of the things we disseminate, my, my suspicion is that it's the lay public that's really doing the uptake as opposed to faculty and, and trainees. So I, I think it's a huge potential target for the work we're doing. And, and a lot of interest, I think, Patients really want to understand what's going on and to have a medical model that explains addiction in the context of the reward circuit, um, I think can really decrease stigma, self-stigma, and can be a really powerful treatment tool. 
it probably does patients a bit of a disservice to really, really dumb it down because we don't understand it ourselves. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, so, and so with that, um, the, the, the stigma piece, I mean, from one perspective, it could say, well, you know, the, the dopamine sort of, there's too much dopamine simplistic kind of, uh, you know, 30-year-old story. Mm-hmm. How would the neuroscience uh, version of that or the more the circuit-based model of the past, you know, updating things, um, how, how could that reduce stigma even further than what's already been done, say, with the, the, the more simplistic uh, dopamine model? Well, so the the um, the current session that we have posted online really talks about the neurocircuit um, and different areas of the brain and what happens, you know, with a heroin addiction. So what what is the normal um, re- reward circuit, and then what happens, and how heroin can hijack that circuit, and how different areas of the brain are upregulated and different control mechanisms are downregulated. And I think that it explains why patients can find themselves with a lack of control over something that they feel they should be able to control. And, and I think having that perspective can take away some of the self, you know, self-blame, the guilt that, that patients experience. It also provides a really robust model for thinking about how we can target each area of that circuit with different treatments, whether it's medication or psychotherapy. And... Um, and so I think, I think it's a model that brings together a lot of different treatment modalities um, in a unifying model. Is there sort of a story that's more compelling, say, than uh, a more simplistic biological version from the past or, or uh, you know, a moralizing version from maybe the present? Yeah, I think... I think it's also helpful for physicians in terms of countertransference that, you know, when you're working with patient populations where there is a lot of relapse, it can be incredibly frustrating. And particularly when um, it's associated with, um, you know, ineffective behaviors. And so um, for, for clinicians to reframe what's happening with your patients, that your, your patient who is, you know, quote-unquote drug-seeking isn't in your office to torture you, but there's something going on at, the, at a biological basis in their brain. I think it just reframes your own empathy for that person um, and, and could be really helpful in that way as well. So there's a few ways to approach the, the transference uh, or counter-transference uh, uh, relationship. And uh, I think that certainly there, there's been some evidence to suggest that a uh, neuroscience understanding or a biological understanding um, can sometimes uh, increase stigma. That, that, uh, that if you say, uh, I, I am this way because of stuff that happened to me in childhood rather than I am this way because I have a brain disorder, um, there are some studies suggesting that there's even more uh, stigma. Um, Right. So I think, I think it's important to keep it balanced so that, um, you know, neuroscience isn't just about um, underlying genetics, but epigenetic changes. So it really is. So when we say this is that neuroscience and biology is a part of that, experience shapes biology. So these, these are not um, one or the other. The other thing is that the, there's been some really interesting research looking at stigma and what shapes stigma. And... Um, some of the data suggests that if you pair 
psychiatric illness with a with a message of hope that there is treatment available that that can be incredibly powerful in decreasing stigma so i think that when we start talking about these biological models one of the things we've done in the sessions we've developed is really talk about how that biological perspective can inform treatment and so pairing it with this message of hope and there's something we can do about it and this is how this transforms into you know treatment options for you and how we can frame treatment options within the context of the neuroscience i think i think that could be very powerful so sort of trying to take the uh the fatalism out of biology exactly exactly yeah and, and I, I noticed also that you've done some work with tr teaching trainees how to explain drugs and um, the side effects of medications to patients as well. And I'd assume that this falls into the same realm for you. Well, so, so I think the things that they have in common is really thinking about active teaching approaches. So um, I think edu medical education in general, I... I, I probably unfairly targeted the neuroscientist coming in with their slide deck. This is actually what all of our professors do, right? They come in, and for, for psychopharmacology, let's say they come in with their slide deck, and they're going to run through. These are the drugs. These are the starting doses. These are the side effects. And um, I can't imagine a more boring way to spend an hour than having someone... Um, lecture on something I could look up in a book. So for teaching, in terms of talking to patients about psychopharm, it's really about using active teaching modules. So residents role play talking to each other, one play, playing the role of the, the physician, one playing the role of the patient, and saying um, literally, what would you say to a patient when you're going to start a certain medication in terms of informed consent? What do they need to know about the starting doses, the side effects? How do you talk about really scary side effects in a way that's not going to um, you know, contribute to medication noncompliance? So, and that just transforms what was what was previously a passive learning experience into something incredibly active and incredibly um, applicable to, to clinical work. So um, I think that's what's in common is really thinking about different ways of teaching. Yeah, and I guess that gets into to something that, that goes far beyond psychiatry, but you've mentioned a few times uh, sort of adult learning and, and uh, ways that we as just as, as people as human beings remember things better what, what are some what are some principles that you've you've come to appreciate from uh, from your work in adult education well i think that learners have to be actively manipulating information so um being a passive recipient and and not doing anything to actively manipulate information so the the data suggests that if you're sitting in an hour-long lecture you might remember five to ten minutes worth of content and um, when we're pressed to teach so many things in training, that is, we can't afford to have wasted time. So it's really about um, getting trainees thinking and coming up with solutions themselves. So if you can come up with a solution yourself rather than someone telling you the answer, that's more likely to stick. If you can learn something in an experiential way, that's more likely to stick. So for example, um, in the um, neuroscience education, um, one of the modules is on the fear circuit. And prior to a conversation about the fear circuit and how we understand the fear circuit, everyone watches a short horror film. And so once you've, once, once you've had your own fear circuit um, activated, then talking about what just happened in your brain, that's a very different experience than, you know, 
passively having someone lecture to you. And probably more fun. Well, that's the, that's the thing. I don't know what happened in education that somewhere between kindergarten and medical education, we decided that learning shouldn't be fun. And so I'm a big fan of learning being fun. So as part of the NNCI, we have, um, trainees make brains out of Play-Doh. Um, and it's fun. It's really fun. So let me, let me get this straight. You, you have people with advanced degrees making Play-Doh brains. Absolutely. I think we did that. <laughs> you did it. I'm sure you did. Yeah, it was spectacular. But, you know, it's funny because I, I originally thought, um, so my anxiety about using play, doing Play-Doh brain and, and having um, people make a brain out of Play-Doh was not that they would think it was too hokey and be unwilling to do it, but they just wouldn't know how to do it. I, when, when Dave Ross suggested we were going to do this and we were going to create brains out of Play-Doh, I said, well, I wouldn't even know how to start. So he said, no, no, we're going to make a video. We're going to show people how to make a brain out of Play-Doh. And it was, it was not only fun, it was incredibly useful. You know, usually when you're sitting in a grand rounds, you're looking at some two dimensional image and you're trying to orient yourself. Okay. They're, they're pointing at something. What is that? But to, to actually, and, and actually in this exercise, I discovered I'm a kinetic learner. Like I really learned in this way of, um, you know, manipulating objects in space was really a useful learning tool for me. So I think it's, it's interesting to mention like kindergarten to college. Like if you never tried any of these methods of learning, you wouldn't know that you were a kinetic learner, right? <laughs> right. But you just kind of go with whatever the oh, people yeah. do. Right. Right. Yeah. So you're saying that the most people are not dry, boring slides from a PowerPoint deck that are presented monotone learners? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Most people are not. <laughs> That's probably the least effective way to teach. And yet we do it. I mean, 